0: People of Conduit, I am incredibly honored and humbled to stand before you this morning and to be able to share this last message in our Christmas Matters series with you. I don't know about you, but I already feel this sense of Holy Spirit heaviness here. That he's here, that he's here to share with us, to touch our hearts in a special way as we draw close to Christmas. I want to say thank you before we get started to Pastor Ben and Pastor Corey and Pastor Cameron for allowing me to stand before you as an ambassador of Jesus Christ and entrusting me with the sacredness of this task this morning. So today is the third message in our Christmas Matters series. We got to hear from Pastor Cameron two weeks ago about why Christmas matters in our homes. We heard that the incarnation of Jesus Christ first began in a stable. In the midst of a situation of brokenness and imperfect circumstances and chaos. And how God at Christmas time through the event of Christmas as we draw close in celebration reminds us to allow him to incarnate himself in our homes in our imperfect circumstances and chaos. So that's the stable you see in this display behind me. Each one of these things is symbolically placed here. And then last week we heard from Pastor Corey about the second message in our Christmas Matters series. Why Christmas Matters in the church. About the incarnation of Jesus Christ in his church. How he is present in every broken life that makes up the tape of the church. Pastor Corey referred to this wall behind us, this pallet wall, and he used that to exemplify how each broken and used piece of a pallet can be brought together and woven together and placed together to form a beautiful piece of art that is awe-inspiring. And how our lives, though broken and messy, when God brings them together and redeems them, He can do beautiful things that are awe-inspiring. Today, as the final message of our Christmas Matters series, we're going to be looking at why the incarnation matters in our community. Why it matters right here in Jamestown. Why does it matter in the landscape of our city? And that's why you see these city buildings drawn on here and these displays all around me. This is a subject, the subject of incarnation in our community. This subject is a, is a subject that for those of you who have gotten to know me, know that it is a very central part of who I am. Something that my heart beats heavily for. And I'm really excited to be able to share about it today. But first, before we go there, I get so wound up and talking so fast that I won't be able to slow down. Would you please pause and say a prayer with me? Lord Jesus, as we gather here before you today, talk talk about your incarnation and why it matters in our community, why it matters in Jamestown, New York, why it matters in the ends of the earth where the scattered are. Father, would you come with your Holy Spirit and remove the bandages from our eyes? Would you allow us to see you fully and wholly, what it meant for you to come to the world in human form Father, I pray that you would give us gentle hearts to hear your words this morning. Lord, this is such a busy season. We get caught up so easily in the busyness of Christmas. Lord, I pray that you would rip that away this morning, that all that white noise would be calmed down so that we could hear your word and focus wholly on the beauty of your incarnation and the sacred call that you've given to each one of us. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Okay, so this morning I'm going to take a couple of different places in Scripture. And I'm going to ask for a little bit of your patience with me as I do that. Um, And we're going to be jumping all over both the Old and the New Testament. But there's this big picture, this panorama, that I really want to share with you this morning. And I've got to go to a few different places to be able to do that. So we're going to start first in the Old Testament. All the way back to the beginning, post-creation, post-Noah starting with Abraham. So, you all know the story of Abraham, I'm assuming. He was the Genesis, the founder of the people of Israel, the beginning of the nation. He was called by God, and God made a covenant with him. And in this covenant, he promised Abraham land, and said, I will bless you, I will give you and all your descendants' land, and you will be a blessing to others. In fact, you don't to go there yet, um, but I'm going to read Genesis 12 to, 12 verses 1 through two real quick. It says, "And the Lord said to Abraham, "Now go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, I will give you a great name. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing." So that was Abraham, the founder of Israel. God was speaking to him. And the next many chapters in the book of Genesis talk about what the unraveling of the legacy of this covenant was for Abraham's sons and grandsons and great-grandsons and about their pursuit of this promised land, this land that God had promised to make his own name great. You with me? All right, stay with me, stay with me. Now fast forward to Moses' time. The people of Israel are without land. Like what? Like God just promised land to Abraham and all of his descendants. But in Moses' time the people are without land. Abraham's descendants are without land. They're living enslaved instead by the Pharaoh in Egypt. They're in pain and suffering and experiencing terrible injustice. So God raises a faithful leader. And through Moses, he rescues them and performs great miracles and takes them into the wilderness away from Egypt. And that wilderness kind of essentially served as a time of therapy, so to speak, of a reshaping of identity, of a re-giving of a promise to his people. And then he rose up Joshua, another faithful leader. And he charged Joshua with leading them into the promised land, which we heard about a few weeks ago from Pastor Ben when we were talking about legacy. And it's right there, it's in the book of Joshua, that we hear for the first time the Hebrew verb davak. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, whether it's in your notes app or or on a notebook, this is a word that you want to write down. Because I'm going to refer to it multiple times this morning, and it's one of those takeaway points that I think will enrich you later on. Davak, spelled D A B A K. Davak. The Hebrew word Davak means to attach to or to possess. In the book of Joshua, the people of Israel are given the charge to go in Davak, to possess the promised land, to move in on it and the people within it, and to make it their own. And from that point forward in the Old Testament, from the book of Joshua forward, the theme, this theme of possessing the land, of Dabak the land, is prevalent. We hear it over and over and over again. The people of Israel, when they are under solid and faithful leadership, they're successful at possessing the land. But when they are in disobedience or have taken on other gods or religions, they lose their land. In fact, it kind of gives you a headache to read through Judges and all of the prophets after it, to read how many times the nation of Israel possesses the land and then dispossesses it through, in, through disobedience. But one thing is clear. If you read through the Old Testament from the very beginning to the end, one theme is clear. Faithfulness and a possession of the land are inextricably linked in the Old Testament. All right, so some of you are probably starting to scratch your heads. Why am I spending so much time talking about the Old Testament and this possession of the land when this is a Christmas series? Well, here's why. And if you take away nothing else this morning, then take away this Jesus Christ turns the tables upside down, both figuratively and literally. He literally flips this theme of faithfulness around. Whereas in the Old Testament, faithfulness and possession of the land are linked in the the mission in the New Testament is entirely different. It's linked completely and incredibly and totally to a possession of the people, no longer of land. Jesus' incarnation, his birth, his moment of entrance into the world... In human flesh, in solidarity with suffering mankind, it changes absolutely everything. I need to take you one more time to the Old Testament text before we can go any further. And this one I do want you to read with me. So if you have a Bible with you, or if you have the Conduit app, can you please go to Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 through 16. The book of Ezekiel... Chapter 34, verses 11 through 16. There should be some Bibles in your pews if you need one. It's the, go- the prophecy of the good shepherd. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 through 16. Okay. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, So it was prophesied in the Old Testament that a good shepherd was coming. A shepherd who would defy this theme of possessing the land. A shepherd whose focus would instead be on possessing the dispossessed. On searching for and rescuing and redeeming all the weak who suffer at the hands of injustice and underprivilege. And on that night, in Bethlehem, when Jesus was born to a poor family and all the wrong circumstances, like Pastor Cameron described to us a few weeks back, on that night, God became flesh and became incarnate in brokenness to begin his mission of redemption, solidarity, and other focusedness. And everything changed from that point forward. Jesus' birth is the fold in the story of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The story of the possession of the land and now the possession of the people. Because from Matthew 1 and Mark 1 and Luke 1 and John 1, all the way forward through the book of Revelation, the central motif becomes go, get my people. There's some of you in this room that I haven't had the privilege of getting to know, and so you don't know my story. Um, where I've been, the causes my heart beats for. So this morning, if it's okay with you, I'd like to share with you a little bit of my story. I am from Bemis Point, um, real close to here, grown and raised by parents who believed in me and loved me deeply and invested all of their time and treasures in me. And when I was 14, all caught up in myself like every adolescent is, I went in my first mission trip to the country of Honduras. Now, if you've never heard of Honduras before, it is in Central America, two countries below Mexico. I was young and naive and I expected that first mission trip to be a little bit like a vacation. Cue the Daisy Duke short shorts and the sunglasses and the sunscreen. I went expecting fun, vacation, and my world was turned upside down. It was fun, but it was also hard work and it gave me a devastating view of what poverty and all of its perversions look like in the third world, like I had never seen before. And as strange as it sounds to hear a 14-year-old say something of this depth, I knew on that very first mission trip that somehow my life was going to forever be linked to the plight of injustice and suffering in Honduras, that somehow my life was going to forever be linked to theirs. And so I kept going each time for a little bit longer, next time for a two-week mission trip, next time for three weeks, next time for four. And then at only 17, I started spending my summers in Honduras um, teaching English as a second language to underprivileged kids at a school. And then at 19, I started leading mission trips of college students to Honduras. And with each trip this this holy discontent inside of me kept growing. This sense of, but what I'm seeing it isn't right. What, I, what I'm witnessing, what I'm feeling it not right. This isn't okay and it will never be okay until God's people do something about it. I went on to college at North Park University in Chicago and I got my degree in youth ministry. Before I graduated, I had to do an internship. Now, The traditional youth ministry internship is within the context of a church, which makes sense. But I really wanted to be with at-risk youth. So I chose to do mine instead with a ministry in Humboldt Park of Chicago called Gangs to Grace. And I worked alongside others in ministering grace and redemption to gang members involved in the Latino gang called the Latin Kings. I know what you're thinking. Something sounds off, right? Me, a white girl from affluent Bemis Point, New York, ministering to urban gang members in Spanish, nonetheless. Um, but you see, Jesus, the king of the world, who came from the highest place of privilege and power, he cast his law in the trenches of broken humanity. And even from a young age, I identified That's where I want to cast my lot, too. As soon as I graduated, I moved to Honduras to marry my husband, Javier, and to begin ministry. Now, the whole time I was in college and doing my internship and traveling back and forth to Honduras, I was also developing a plan of what I wanted to do post-college. And God was developing inside of me this dream of building a ministry for at-risk teenagers in gang-ridden slums of Honduras. Now if you've heard of the country of Honduras before I spoke today, then you've most likely heard of it in relation with two different things. Either with the high rate of corruption, and the presidents that have been taken out of power by the people, or you've heard of it in relation to its violence. Honduras has the highest murder rate per capita in the world beating out even war-infested countries in Africa and the Middle East. The country is the main stopping point for drugs on their way from South America to the United States. And gangs and drug trafficking rings play a pivotal role in the control of those drugs. while I was in college and developing this plan and getting it proofed by teachers and other community agencies to kind of foment best practices and, and how to combat violence with Christ centered mission, I also started having this dream. It was just like this repeat dream. Like I'd go six months without it and then I'd have it again. And then I'd go two weeks without it and I'd have it again. And then three, weeks, or three months without it and then I'd have it again. But it's just this recurring, very fast dream. Almost just kind of like an image. And in this dream, every time I had it, same exact thing, I would see this city of gold. This city of perfection. With gold-cobbled streets and a hill and a bridge with living water flowing underneath it. And honestly, I I didn't think much of it every time I had it, except that I was annoyed by it. Like, why do I keep having this dream? What is this supposed to mean? I can't understand this, enough so that I mentioned it to friends and family. So I moved to Honduras with my plan of best practices. And I recruited Javier and a a few community elders that were well respected from the slums of Tegucigalpa, the capital city of Honduras to start taking me to Canvas neighborhoods so that I could choose where we were gonna put our feet down, where we were gonna found this ministry, this ministry plan I'd been revising and revising and rising with my best practices. And the night before we went to Canvas with these community elders, I remember having the same dream, only this time it was different. It was the same place but it was as everything was in reality. Nothing was in gold or or perfect. Everything was broken. It was a beat-up cobble street, a hill filled with broken and decaying homes, and a bridge that ran over the city's sewage. And this time, as the dream ended, unlike all of the times before, I audibly heard a voice say, this is where I'm sending you. Now, I've got to be honest, I honestly thought I was crazy that I was losing my mind, and I didn't understand why I was having this recurring dream. Like, what was, what was I trying to manifest at night in my dreams? I don't know. So I just decided to kind of, like, push this to the side of my mind, because that was a big day. Oh, my goodness, I'd been developing this ministry plan for years and years, and finally it was the day to choose where we were going to put our feet down, where it was going to happen. And I had these parameters for choosing the community that I'd established and I really wanted to make a wise choice. So I just kind of pushed that weird dream out of my head. And we went ahead and we started canvassing the neighborhoods. We went and saw nine different slum communities that day. They were all hot spots for violence and places of devastating poverty. But I never had that aha moment that I was looking for. And so at the end of the day, I asked one of the elders who had been showing us around who hadn't taken us to his neighborhood, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Barrio Sepile." And I said, but why didn't we go there today? And he said, oh, Miss Castro, I, I can't take you there. It is a place of grave danger. No police are willing to come into our community. There's, there's no churches, no schools, no community agencies. There's just a drug trafficking ring and, and a gang and they're at war and I can't take you there. It's too dangerous. I thought about it for a minute and I said, please take me there. He resisted for a bit and to the benefit of my husband because his heart is to protect me, he resisted quite heavily as well but if you know anything about me, you know that I am stubborn to the core. And so my stubbornness won, and they gave in and took me. And guys, when I got out of the car on that day, I stepped out of the vehicle, every single hair on my body stood on edge. It was the same place for my dreams, the exact same cobble streets, the exact same hill, the exact same bridge that I had been seeing in a dream for years and years. And on that day, the the elders of that community showed us data that they had been collecting of that neighborhood, that neighborhood called Barrio Sepile. And for that neighborhood, for that year, it showed that 50% of all young people from Barrio Sepile died before ever reaching the age of 18. 50% mortality rate due directly to violence. So much violence. Such a devastating and scary place to the world. Scary enough that even the police said no. But I knew from that moment forward that my lot was with them because Jesus was there. We launched a ministry three months later in Barrio Sapile called Ministerio La Raza, The words La Raza in Honduras mean my people. Every family and every teen in that neighborhood became our people over the next four years. We love them deeply, and even though we experienced waves of fear and tragedy over the years, dismembered bodies that were left at our front door to scare us, close calls with bullets, and teens that we had called our own, that we had to bury. We also experienced great redemption. As we loved and were present in solidarity and bringing justice to the community, cords of grace and hope were restored, the violence rate dropped, and a new generation of young people that would have been the next individuals in their family to choose to either join the gang or the drug trafficking ring, they chose life and education and dignified jobs instead. Now, what we did doesn't make sense to people. I'm not asking for it to make sense to you. Heck, gosh, when Javier and I relive it, sometimes it doesn't even make sense to us. But I know deep down in my core that the incarnate Jesus calls us to be incarnate and suffering too, even in situations that don't make sense to the outward mind. Check this out. In Matthew 4, Jesus is about to begin his adult ministry. He's just, he's lived the first 30 years of his life with his family. He's been tempted in the wilderness and now the three years of his public ministry, the years that we hear all about in the four gospel accounts, they're about to begin. So what do you think his first move was? This God man with all of the power and privilege in the world who could change things at the snap of his finger. What was his first play? Read with me. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 4 through 18. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Okay. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So let me ask you again, what was the first play of the most powerful human who has ever walked this earth. He went to the riffraff. To the edge of the Sea of Galilee where some poor brothers who were fishermen who were down on their luck and were struggling to make ends meet. And he made them his own. Jesus' very first move according to the Gospel of Matthew was to possess the dispossessed. And oh my goodness, what does he say to him? This is prophetic because it foreshadows every single other text to come in the rest of the New Testament. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus wants to redeem us and then he wants to send us. You see, it's this crazy, illogical thing. The scandal of the gospel is that when you meet the abandoned, crucified Messiah, he grabs you and you belong to Him. Wherever you are in privilege and power and status and opportunity, you start the movement down, not up, and you go down and down and down until you are powerless except for His power. You go down until you find yourself with a riffraff. Now the evangelists I listened to, my, to you in my youth, they didn't make that clear. But Jesus and the evangelists of the New Testament, they make that devastatingly clear. One keeps going down and down and down until one is identified with the victimized poor wherever they are scattered throughout the earth. Wherever you see them and hear about them, you know that your lot is cast with them, that they are your people. I began my ministry for four years among la raza, my people the people experiencing the violence of drug cartels in Honduras. But in 2013, I gave birth to a perfect baby girl named Lily, who because she was born in Honduras and they lack sufficient tools and resources to properly care for babies, our baby Lily died when she was just three weeks old in Honduras. Do you know what happened next? That experience of losing Lily in Honduras opened my eyes to the experience of thousands of other mothers unjustly losing their babies in Honduras, and to the devastatingly high maternal and infant mortality rate. And then the mourning, the crying, the empty-armed mothers of Honduras, they became my people. I founded the not-for-profit organization Little Angels of Honduras to reduce maternal infant mortality in the country through the provision of medical supplies, advanced education, and new hospital construction. And then I moved back to the US to continue fundraising and directing Little Angels of Honduras, and I relocated our family to Jamestown, New York, and we started attending here, Conduit Ministries, in March of this year. And then the addicted, the hated, the single mothers with children, the disenfranchised Latino community, the broken of Jamestown, they are not my people. Because you guys, no one single people is our people. God has called us through Jesus Christ and in his, his incarnation to make all of suffering mankind our people. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the message of the season that we sang about. God present with us. God present in the suffering child calling out for peace and redemption. God present through us. Us with them. This is Christmas. This is Christmas. Is incarnation. What I do or do not do to someone in need I do or do not do to Jesus. Now the disciples question is not what would Jesus do, the disciples question is rather what do I do with Jesus? It is Jesus I meet in the abused, in the needy, in the angry, in the enemy. Mother Teresa once said as she walked among pallets of dying men, this is suffering Jesus. And this is vomiting Jesus. And this is dying Jesus. When the unlovely other can be seen as the embodiment of Christ, the pinched face of suffering recognized as the face of Christ, then every other becomes the other. So davak to possess this verb that we talked about, this Hebrew word that is laced throughout the Old Testament in reference to the land, it, get, it gets reframed upon Jesus' birth. And at the very end of Jesus' time on Earth, he gives what scholars have called the new Davak command, which we know is the Great Commission: "Go and make disciples of all the nations go." Davak, my people who suffer, go be incarnate with them. It was never the design or creation of God for his people to be tied to a certain land or a certain building, like we sometimes get tied to our churches and, and the four walls around us, and to our traditions, and to our nationalistic ideology. This is what went wrong in the Old Testament. This is why Jesus came. Remember what I read from Genesis 12 from the covenant that God first made with Abraham, the father and founder of Israel. He said, "I will bless you, go, and you will be a blessing to others." And in Ezekiel, in the good shepherd prophecy, it was prophesied that Jesus it was prophesied that Jesus would search for the lost, bring back the strays, bind up the injured, strengthen the weak, and shepherd the flock with justice. He said to his first disciples, as we read in Matthew 4, those fishermen with broken nets and down on their luck, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Guys, if we're missing the go, then we're missing the full meaning of incarnation. I found my home, so to speak, upon relocating to the U.S. here at Conduit. Because Conduit is a people that believes in the go. Conduit is a people that believes in living on mission. Conduit is a bunch of imperfect families and imperfect homes working out redemption through the grace of our Heavenly Father who gather in a building once a week to be empowered and to minister grace to one another. And ultimately, there are people who go. You know that dream I used to have, that one of a city of gold, that on the night before going to Canvas Neighbor, Neighborhoods to launch a new ministry, I finally saw that neighborhood as was. Well, I believe that dream was prophetic. Not just because it led me to cast my lot with people living in extreme suffering, but even more so prophetic as an outline for life for the Christian life that we are all called to, a similar cord or strand that should be woven throughout our personal missions. Jesus wants to restore and redeem our cities and our communities. It starts in our homes, in our stables, then it overflows to our churches. And then it flows into mission, touching every building, every home, every family, every child, every community agency, every person who is desperate and in need of the grace, love, and touch of Jesus Christ. We must embrace the go moment. Our war cry when there is intense suffering or extreme violence cannot be retreat. Our war cry must always be fight, not flight. We have to incarnate ourselves, our very own lives in the midst of the chaos and, and suffering and the violence just as our Lord Jesus Christ himself did. Philippians 2.7, and part of this is paraphrased, the rest is word for word, says, Jesus Christ, the God-man, who being the owner of heaven and earth, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being founded human for he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. I wanna follow Jesus's way. I wanna go get his people and help alleviate their burden so that they can know the fullness of his love and liberation. Can you go ahead and bring up that first picture for me, please? This picture right here, these are some of my teens from Ministerio La Raza. They were and they are worth going for. Next picture. These are babies from one of the hospitals that we're currently in the midst of constructing, constructing an addition onto. They were and they are worth going for. Next picture, please. This mama and her baby, their relationship is worth going for. Next slide. These people gathered outside of our Conduit North facility for I Am Love Thanksgiving to receive Thanksgiving meals, to take home and share with their families around their table. They are worth going for. Every single family there is worth going for. Next slide, please. These children. Their innocence and their right to the fullness of life, it is worth going for. Christmas matters because the incarnation of Jesus Christ is a shift in the storyline of the Bible. The Old Testament focuses on a possession of the land, but the New Testament, from the earliest chapters all the way through the account of Revelation, Focus on a possession of the people, of the lost, of the scattered, of the poor, of the enslaved. Jesus incarnate changes history. Love incarnate changes the entire direction of each one of our lives. I'm going to borrow from Mother Teresa again. She also once said this Love has a hem to her garment that reaches the very dust. It sweeps the stains from the streets and lanes, and because it can, it must. Because we can, we must. This Christmas, as you gather to worship our Savior and celebrate with your families and friends, would you ask Jesus what way you can serve him in 2017 by going to get his people? Which faction of people is God calling you to? What people group is he laying on your heart? What trenches is he asking you to climb into? What ways can you contribute to his mandate to go in Davak to possess the dispossessed in 2017? If you want to pray about this after the service, I'm going to be here. And if you want advice and strategy and discuss best practices or even discuss an area or an issue or a people that you already know that God is laying on your heart, I'm going to be here too and I'm going to be available for coffee whenever you want to go. Pastor Cameron's here and Pastor Ben and Pastor Corey are here and we want to send you on mission. We don't want 2016 to end before you know that you are empowered to walk into 2017 with the full power and love of the Incarnation of Jesus Christ inside of you through His Holy Spirit sending you to radically change and revive your city. We want you to join us in restoring our city and restoring our world in gathering the lost and the scattered in empowering the poor and freeing the enslaved and bringing peace to situations of violence. We want you to experience the richness of Jesus Christ sending you. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Oh my goodness, thank you so much because even in the busyness of this season and and how quickly we get entangled with our own lives and and all of our busyness and all the things we have to do and the things we have to check over off of our to-do list, Lord Jesus, you interrupt, you come with your spirit and you meet with us. Thank you, Father God, for sending your spirit to meet here with us this morning for using your word as a tool of inspiration and empowerment to send us your people. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, for being willing to incarnate yourself in the midst of our messes. Oh, God, we just admire you so much, and we want to imitate you. You are worthy of imitation. Father, there is a people gathered here that desperately desires to restore their city. Jesus, hear our cry before you. Lord Jesus, we don't want any more bullets flying in our community. No more broken families, no more moms trying to have to figure it all out on their own with their kids. Lord Jesus, we want to see redemption, restoration, hope, love, and grace flowing down the streets of our city. And we know that you're calling us to be the agents of that. So I ask now, Holy Spirit, come and meet with us. Holy Spirit, come and minister to our hearts. Give us courage and bravery to get down into those trenches where it's dirty and it's messy and it's going to hurt a whole lot, but, oh Jesus, you're calling us. Give us the courage to step down into those trenches. Place your protection around this people and make that go loud in each of our hearts. Thank you for your incarnation, Emmanuel. Thank you for being with us. We praise your great and holy name. Amen.